Spectre Cinema Club, episode 164. Today we're talking about the Amityville Horror from 1979. Steve Carlson on Letterboxd gave it one and a half stars, saying you'd think that if you're going to be making up flagrant, obvious bullshit, you could at least make that bullshit interesting. Could this be the single most indifferent work in the horror canon? Hello, hello. Welcome to the Spectre Cinema Club, a horror podcast obsessed with all the subgenres within. I am one of your hosts, Devon Taylor. Joined with me as always, I got Garrett McDowell. Hello, hello. The other host ready to uh, start a new and exciting month of uh, the the possessed, Devon. Will it take over us as a podcast host? We'll have to wait and see, I guess. I guess we're going to have to see. I mean, we'll just have to keep chopping wood. I think that's uh, the thing that keeps uh, the spirits away, apparently. I don't know. Um, what would but, be uh, your I'm getting possessed like task that you obsess over? <laughs> Ooh, that's a that's a good one. Um, my possessed task would probably be um like rearranging the the spice rack and like oh, I see. For it, like re, like because I'm a I, I got OCD so like I'm a, a I, I enjoy patterns and uh things to be like equal mm-hmm. and stuff like that so like it would be me like just like rearranging a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, same, because I'm a big uh, collector. I've got lots of doohickeys and things and, you know, little collectibles around my house. So I would just be like rearranging those or dusting them or like keeping them clean, which is not that far off from how I am now. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm already like that's what OCD is. It is a possession already uh, in, in a kind of a way. But uh, yeah, so we're kicking off the month talking uh, possession movies um, uh, in honor of uh, the 50th anniversary for The Exorcist, uh, for The Exorcist, which we will cover at the end of the month. Um, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I, I think this is a fascinating subgenre, at least for me, for many reasons. One, I uh, I kind of like the the format of the typical possession movie. Like we have so many possession movies, so many, and so many of them like kind of hit this like specific formula. Um, which I don't uh, hate though, because like even though I'm not a religious person, I find religious imagery fascinating and uh, mm-hmm. explorations of faith fascinating. Uh, and I like a lot of like kind of the hallmarks of possession movies, such as like, you know, the, uh, you know, exorcism at the end of the movie, um, you know, the possessed person, you know, kind of going crazy and like kind of having uh, a lot of possession movies, the possessed person kind of has like dual performances. And I find that fascinating as well, which we'll kind of get into with some other films. Um, uh, but how do you feel about possession movies in general? Uh, overall, I do really like the idea of possession films having uh, the story usually always be a very personal one. It's usually always uh, a family member or a loved one that you're seeing kind of deteriorate before your eyes, which I think a lot of horror filmmakers have done such a great job of using kind of the the tropes or what one audiences would you know kind of come to expect from possession films, but using them to explore a lot of really interesting themes and subgenres within itself, either having like this domestic horror with the film that we're going to talk about today or going into more religious undertones or more uh, societal undertones i i think that filmmakers really do um have such freedom with with something like this the idea of someone that you know suddenly not being in control of their actions and there's this you know demonic presence taking over them i think there's a lot of horror to sort of ring out of that yeah i I like the way that you mentioned uh, a lot of these movies are very personal like you said uh, they hit whether it's you know hitting with your family whether it's hitting uh with your uh you know faith and beliefs and uh and i'm a big person uh when it comes to you know free will like i hate the idea of you know not being able to control my actions like you know Mm -hmm. i think that's like kind of in my mind that's like you know one of the last like you know kind of saving human graces you know is like kind of you know autonomy over uh your actions your mind your body um, and so I think there is a lot of uh, interesting ways to go, and I'm excited for the slate of movies that we have because we're not just looking at the religious angles. Um, you know, like, I mean, we there yeah. obviously will be religious angles. It, there always is, but we do have a few of them that um, aren't strictly focusing on that. Um, kind of one of my cons of this movie that we're talking about today. Um, <laughs> so I'm very excited to uh, go ahead and hop into today's episode.
The Amityville Horror, released July 27th, 1979. This was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, uh, written by Sandor Stern, which was uh, based on the book The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, which has been met with uh, lots of controversy over the years. Um, cinematography was done by Fred J. Cohenkamp, and the score done by Lalo Schifrin, who is a Grammy-nominated jazz musician, but also did the theme for the Mission Impossible TV series. Uh, which is uh, pretty cool, which got inducted into uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, so that's, oh, I didn't know that. So that's pretty fascinating. Uh, this was edited by Robert Brown Jr. Um, I did not realize this was such a box office success. Uh, $86.6 million on a $4.7 million budget. And back in 79, like that's, that's pretty damn good movies and a yeah. really good uh, percentage return as well. Yeah, not only was this really financially successful, but, uh, you know, audience-wise, people really seemed to enjoy it. It wasn't as successful as far as the the critics are concerned, unfortunately, um, but it did ma- manage to earn itself an Oscar nomination for the score of this film, which, if you think about it, is kind of crazy, because you just never see stuff like that anymore, where horror films, the idea of a horror film getting nominated for a score is just kind of foreign nowadays. Which it's, is, it's, it's which funny is, to see. Which that, is wild, you know, because yeah. I think horror has some of the best scores. Like, I think... Yeah. Yeah, horror for scores sure. <laughs> are like infinitely better than a lot of other like kind of regular scores. Uh, so like, yeah, it is kind of interesting that horror movies don't get scores. Like they get acting stuff, um, they get production design stuff, uh, and like yeah. technical stuff sometimes. But yeah, you rarely kind of see the score uh kind of come through. Um, and this um, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes has a thirty-one percent on forty-five reviews. Again, you know we kind of know how these things work with uh, the low mm-hmm. reviews of older movies. Uh, what do you think the Letterbox average rating is? Um, I don't think the Letterbox rating is very high for this. I think that this is a movie that certainly wears its era, meaning that for a lot of folks, it's going to be pretty fucking boring. <laughs> so I think it's going to be pretty low down there. I would assume maybe a two point nine, two point eight. Uh, very close. Uh, as usual, you are within the the point one decimal. It's a a three flat. This is barely ah. uh coming in fresh for the letterbox crowd. And honestly, you, I would say probably squeaking in at three just barely. <laughs> yeah, and this franchise is so fascinating. Uh, it has a very long storied interesting history filled with many controversies uh that would take an entire month of a podcast hell it would take an entire year of a podcast because there are 44 uh different variations of amityville movies uh only six in the original amityville series uh but then after that people just started making them because amityville is a actual place so you can use the name but as long as it wasn't based off the events people are allowed to so like especially in the early 2000s with direct to uh, DVD uh, a lot of people just started making Amityville movies because it has that name recognition to it Uh, if you want to hear more information on that uh, go check out go to Blade Disgusting friend of the show Joe Lipset has spent the past year uh, uh, covering every single one uh, in oh, written God. format, yeah. Like I, I was like, you are a what a chore, what a chore. <laughs> you are a strong, strong soul, my man. Uh, so yeah, if you want to uh, get more, um, you know, kind of background information, uh, go check out those articles because uh, there's way too yeah. much for us to kind of get into here. Um, but uh, this was your choice, and it's kind of funny because uh, it sounds like we're both kind of low on it. So why did you pick it? Um, yeah, I think it is, sometimes it is necessary on this podcast uh, to cover some of the big heavy hitters. You know, I don't think that necessarily it's always, hey, here's a look at movies that we all universally love. I think especially with movies like the Amityville Horror, if you're talking about possession movies, you almost owe it, you know, to ourselves as, you know, horror film historians and aficionados to cover something like this and weigh in on it. So I think for me, I'm certainly more positive on it than I think a lot of people are. I certainly appreciate the significance of the film really being a movie that was such a trendsetter not of course being the only one but you know in that group of films that would later go on to um, inspire so many haunted house possession movies to come 
Um, I really like the uh, a lot of the performances in the film. I think the score of the movie is fantastic, and I do think there are actually effective um, sequences in this movie. It's just overall cohesively, it doesn't really work together for me. I'm not near as kind of negative <laughs> on the movie as I'm seeing a lot of people being, but honestly, it's one of those films that in, any criticism that somebody has of this movie, I'm like, you're right, it is pretty boring. You're <laughs> right, there's not much to it. Like, I, I totally, you know, don't have a love or an affinity for this film, but it's more of an appreciation for it, which I think sometimes is necessary. No, and you're right. Yeah, we do, we do need to pay our respects, uh, whether it be for something that is, you know, seminal uh, in high regard or in, you know, like the way that you mentioned, like this di- is kind of a baseline film for, you know, Haunted House uh, possession movies, um, you know, which I'm sure will kind of call, uh, bring up some more of these like hallmarks throughout the month, maybe in our movie math as well. Um, but yeah, because uh, I've never seen this one. I've uh, I've seen the 2005 version so many times. I used to watch it so much whenever I was younger. I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder. You wonder why? Uh, is it Ryan Reynolds' abs? Uh, it's a good chunk of it. Yeah, that is a good portion of it. Not that we don't have a hot cast in this one though, too. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah. So this was my first time actually watching this one. I really haven't watched any of the other Amityville properties either. Um, and yeah, this movie is uh, kind of whack. Uh, like, uh, I think it started off really good. Like the first 30 minutes are pretty damn solid and there's some interesting imagery. I think, uh, the, the two main performances by Brolin and Kidder are very solid. Um, but then the movie is just very boring. It's way too long. There's just kind of, we're just like, kind of like, I don't know. There's so many scenes that really don't amount to anything throughout this. And then on top of that all of the Christianity stuff feels completely detached. Like this movie did not need the preachers or the church stuff at all. Like this movie would have been just fine and could still function as a possession movie without having them in it because they are so inconsequential to the film. However, I think that is a, uh, a you know big part of the success of this, uh, especially if you ask Margot Kidder, um, you know, she was pretty much saying she was like, um, you know, this movie, she pretty much said, uh, this movie sucks. Uh, I was doing the one for one for them, one for me. This was definitely for them. Uh, and she said uh, it was the crazy Christians who made it a hit. Uh, they wanted people to believe in the devil and possessions and haunted houses and all that hooey. Uh, what a what a 70s term hooey. We need to bring hooey. All back. that hooey. Also, I love, uh, you know, the fact that Margot Kidder's like, look, I'm an actor. It was a job. Doesn't mean I was in love with it. You know, that's just not really something that you hear nowadays. So props, honestly. <laughs> oh, yeah. She was she, like, and that was me uh, shortening the quote. She had a pretty big quote and uh, thoughts yeah. about it. But she also like kind of was like taking the piss out of it. She was like, I was laughing the entire time we were filming and people yep. were like getting annoyed because I was like not taking it seriously at all. <laughs> uh, love Margot Kidder for so many reasons. Um, and I will get the bulk of my remake thoughts out here as we'll probably mention some more of it later. Later, uh, but this would have been an interesting remake comparison uh, episode um, because I think the remake is scarier. It's more interesting. Uh, the whole cast is involved, and it's thirty minutes shorter. Like, I mean, like, like it's kind of an improvement in every single way, honestly. Uh, and I know yeah, people I- aren't huge on that movie, but I think it's pretty underrated. I think that's my thing is you're kind of comparing two things that are both okay, you know, like which one is the least, you know, the, the least mediocre out of the two. That was, that's how that conversation would sound on my end. <laughs> I, I think I think the 2005 one is actually pretty good. I think it has some really good scares in it. Uh, it's a very good like time capsule of like 2005 horror. Um, and yeah, but I just think it takes so much of the things makes it more interesting in a much you know smaller package um which ultimately is i feel probably how a lot of people just see this movie right is that it takes a lot of the things that this movie does but just does it in a better way i can i can list so many other horror films that maybe are paying homage or of course are inspired by this movie but they just do this but just significantly better (laughs) yeah which i will definitely have more thoughts on that when we get to movie math um but are you ready to hiss with a 60 second synopsis I mean, I don't really think I'm going to need that much time, but I'm ready for it anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, I got you on the clock here in three, two, one, go. Uh, So you've got this sort of struggling middle class family, the Lutz, uh, Kathy Luck. 
uh, uh, Lutz is recently uh, separated and has these uh, kids that she's looking out for. Uh, 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 well, excuse me, that she's looking after uh, recently married to uh, George Lutz. Uh, and they move into this house that they can't afford together. And it's kind of the early days of their marriage. Uh, while they're trying to get settled into this new home, uh, they quickly uncover that there was a moida there. Uh, there was a man who killed his entire family. Uh, and perhaps George Lutz, uh, the newfound father of this family, is kind of coming under the same influence that potentially uh you know drove that previous family crazy even with a flub you still had 20 seconds left so yeah you, you were definitely right and not needing i tripped over the starting line and <laughs> i got still... shot with the with the little gun <laughs> and then and then you still made it out so it's okay thank you um, I appreciate but, it. but yeah like i mean it's kind of uh, uh straightforward it is again as we've mentioned like a template for things that we'd uh, would come to see later and I mean it still draws on a lot of like early like uh, 60s haunted house films as well um, to a degree and uh, yeah um, I think uh, as far as uh, us getting into subgenres here um, obviously possession obviously haunted house um, I think the domestic horror is one of the stronger angles and the more interesting angle for it because um, as it is November right now, or end of November going into December, which is a time where money is tight for a lot of people, um, you know, trying to do stuff for holidays and what have yeah. you, but then also workplaces getting slow, um, you know, so it's like I very much related in that way um, to, you know, these kind of fears of you know like uh i love how this is what can is reality horror a thing um because like <laughs> this is like uh horrors of the housing market <laughs> in, a, in an interesting way as well uh what other subgenres were working for you i think the domestic horror is certainly the most compelling you know in the film i think as i've gotten older and certainly a lot of people in my generation have gotten older the idea of owning a house becomes more and more far-fetched that you know seeing the struggling middle class family trying to move into this house which is enormous i might add maybe get a little smaller guys <laughs> they're talking about all these like financial troubles that they have but they're moving into this big ass house well, i mean they do anyway, got three kids i mean they, you, you i mean need, but that, that, that's a, a big ass room. house man i mean come on <laughs> it's like lakefront there's a boat there's a dock you know i'm just saying <laughs> they got they're asking for a lot there anyway um i think the idea of like owning a house and moving into a house becomes like really you know improbable and impossible for you know a lot of people our age and so to see if film that is also about this family in the middle class like moving into this house that they couldn't afford trying to make this work and then having george lutz moving into this family and you know kind of being this new father in a weird way i think that certainly is one of the more compelling aspects of the film because like you had mentioned the whole religious horror aspect is mostly like a seasoning salt for this it's like in it to just spice it up and have some cool scenes it doesn't really affect the the overall film so i would say certainly the domestic at home side of the film is uh, really the most compelling for me yeah yeah the religious horror is pretty light honestly and you know, I mean, and it's never, I mean, yes, like it is like the house was like built where a former Satanist built a house. And then that's why it, you know, kind of has this, uh, you know, chain of events of the people that move in. But the horror is never from the Lutz's like struggle with faith. Like, I mean, Kathy does have faith and like, you know, she mentions it. But at the same time, we never even see her and Father Delaney interact this entire movie. And then, like, and, and the things I did think were interesting, though, was whenever, like, um, whenever uh, Jeff and Carolyn start coming into the film more and, like, Carolyn's ideas about spirituality, I thought that was interesting. And so take out the preachers and then just, uh, you know, bring in this couple a little bit more, I think would have been more interesting as well, because I think Jeff and George also had a, like, nice friendship as well. So it's like, really, just take the preachers out and you can still explore the spirituality aspect through just the you know them being human or not that preachers aren't humans i'm uh, well who knows uh but yeah, you know, uh, the, the jury's still out <laughs> the jury's still on that one um yeah so like yeah the the religious horror i i found uh to be kind of uh kind of bland uh yeah for sure. i mean i mean i will say it's certainly hard uh i keep saying certainly must be word of the day um i i think it's it's really difficult to you know compare this film on its you know approach to religion because uh it is you know pretty out, much outdone by the exorcist in almost every way possible that uh it's hard not for this movie to kind of be um eclipsed uh, eclipsed by the exorcist but i do think the the, the one of the few things that I, I i like about the priest aspect of it all is there is kind of this 
you know we talked a lot about uh with with hitchcock is the priests are knowing the dangers that are facing this family and the severity of it and they're trying to combat it and the the the, you know the evil presence is almost more open and almost more willing to like outwardly haunt them whereas the house that you know that's you know haunting the family is almost a little bit more subdued or it's playing the long game a little bit more so i think there is this nice contrast of the priests know the exact danger of what's happening that is you know about to befall this family but the the family is kind of in this you know false sense of security in a nice way yeah and and um the the and when people have like kind of looked back on this the the domestic horror and like the economical horror is kind of the focus on a lot of some of these like scholarly uh, uh writings and things like that like kind of reflecting on the fears that you know young couples and families were having in the 70s with uh these kind of housing uh markets uh, having these drastic changes and things like that um Stephen King would uh kind of explore a little bit of this with his own interpretation uh not it's not a like adaptation of Amityville by any means but uh in Dan's Macabre is uh kind of uh his take on exploring the more uh so- societal and domestic horrors that are uh here uh and uh, kind of doing his own thing with like kind of tying it back to like a uh, Victorian like gothic horror as well um but yeah so so those are like kind of the I think those are pretty much like the main subgenres going on here um so let's talk about our uh, titular characters um not titular their names aren't in the title um but uh George <laughs> Mr. And K- Mr. Amityville <laughs> <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Amityville um uh, uh the Amityville uh representation for uh like beauty pageants would just be uh, a ghoul <laughs> apparently <laughs> um but um so we got George and Kathleen Lutz here and they yes like you had mentioned they are a couple that is uh together and uh Kathy has uh three kids from a previous marriage um and they are you know they're trying to find a house and um you know they they you know George pretty much pitches it as like hey like you know we can get it for this price we can flip it I can save some costs uh through work stuff by like you know doing more work from home um and like kind of pitches this whole thing on um on why they need it and they never explain why they need to move to begin with um so the whole reason why they're there is kind of ambiguous um but um i i I did find them uh very endearing like from the beginning like they're kind of little cutesy scenes together i was like oh these two are in love like i can feel that and like it's very Mm -hmm. cute um and they uh have a really nice dynamic through the movie i honestly think uh the performances by james Rowland and uh margot kidder are kind of the saving grace for me as far as this film goes Uh, how do you feel about the couple i totally agree and i think a lot of films around this era are you know uh, almost as equal parts drama as they are horror and i think that that's really fitting for the possession uh, possession genre especially when it's more of a domestic side of thing it's really key that you need to like these characters it's key that you need to relate to them in a way and, and see you know uh, a lot of young people i think can relate to again to these characters and kind of that the fear that happens when you move in you know recently with uh in a new relationship so yeah i think that uh, the two of them uh certainly have really nice uh chemistry uh and it's fun to see james roland kind of go to this you know crazed uh, uh you know journey that he goes on th- at the end of the film he's just got these beaten red eyes and he's just you know chasing his family with an axe uh, it's really great this dude sweats so much this entire <laughs> film like he is drenched yeah. like in every he, scene it's hilarious yeah, with this big afro and these big red eyes just running around that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> i mean again they are very hot i would be their third in an instant <laughs> um, but um, one one thing that does uh, differ from this versus uh, the the remake, because if we were talking the remake, I would have included stepdaddy horror into the subgenres, uh, which isn't as in play here. Like, there's a few uh, times where like he's like kind of you know mentioning like oh your kids and like you know things like that. Um, but the 2005 version actually highlights that in a very interesting way, like kind of the horrors of. You know, because they actually involve the kids. The kids are so such a non-factor in this movie. I don't even think the boys have like more than three lines a piece. Like the the little girl has, you know, her creepy moments, obviously, with uh uh talking to Jody the ghost and things like that. But like the boys, I never even got their names. They don't say anything. They just like kind of walk around and fall downstairs. Um, but like in the remake, yeah. like the the kids are focused on so much more and 
a lot of the horrors come from their POV of George being the stepdad, not being their actual father. And and with uh, George and Kathy's like interactions uh, concerning the kids is highlighted so much more in that one versus this one. It does kind of only it, it sprinkles in a little bit. But really, the the uh, the domestic horror is mainly between George and Kathy themselves. Yeah, it really is more laser focused on their relationship as opposed to something like this or even, you know, The Shining, you know, which is exactly that child perspective that you were talking about. Um, uh, I, I really do like that this kind of has that more focus on the on the couple and, and their struggles and moving into this new home and the financial struggles and him kind of uh, having this odd relationship with the, or lack thereof of a relationship with the kids. I do think it really would have helped uh, the, the movie to you know, offer that POV a bit more and, and how they view their quote unquote new dad, you know, kind of losing his mind. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, it's something that I think the shining really nailed. And then also something like uh, Toby Hooper's um, um, poltergeist being about this kid who's taken away, you know, them being the target of this, uh, you know, demonic possession. Of course, the sequel's more focused on the dad, but I wonder if there is something to that of, the, you know, making the movie more heightened or the stakes being higher because it's about children and children are involved, whereas here they're kind of just like off doing their own thing throughout a lot of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and, and you still do get that horror between them because there is still like kind of this lingering of like you're in a fresh relationship and like in uh and it's not really hinted at if they are moved in together beforehand this or if this is them moving in together at the first at, for the first time which i think yeah. it's the latter but they don't they're not really clear about it but if it is the latter um it does kind of play into that idea of like when you're in a relationship and they always say like uh you know you should really live with someone before you marry them because like you truly yeah. don't get to know somebody until you're living with them so there is like this uh, kind of paranoia that uh Kathy starts to have throughout the film of being like you know do i really know george and like even when she uh, is going through the microfiche which i do love a microfiche scene always um and she like sees the pictures of ronald and people keep saying that they look alike and then uh, i mean it almost would have been an interesting thing if he actually just was ronald and she i mean she did kind of think it for an instant uh like because she saw his uh, the picture of uh defeo and then she was like oh my gosh george but it's and I don't know if they used Brolin as those pictures. Cause, I mean, it looks just like him. Um, so, um, you know, I think it might have been an interesting thing if that ended up being the case. But it still works in the way of like her questioning, you know, uh, you know, this person that she's in love with, like how much does she actually know about him? Yeah, I think I really do prefer the latter as well. The idea of moving into this relationship and you're right, having that you have an idea of who this person is. But once you live with that person, you know, the kind of what are the true colors that you, you know, begin to see kind of unfold. Um, I I think personally, it's uh, certainly hitting a bit more, you know, closer to home. I just recently moved in with my partner and, I, you know, having never lived with somebody before, I think that not to say that they've become like a a raging lunatic that's going to kill me with an axe, but anything thing as possible uh but more the idea of you know kind of getting to know somebody closer whether you know it's for good or for ill like in this movie's case uh, so i think you know a lot of that just kind of you know uh, had a bit more personal resonance this time I, it's it really is a movie that is dealing with a lot of interesting ideas it just doesn't execute in a very interesting way it's just kind of circling a lot of interesting stuff you know this uh, more drama-led family-led uh, relationship about money and moving in with somebody and you know becoming I mean, a, a new father and all of that and religion. It's just not executed in uh, a compelling way at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You might want to check the, the background of your guys' new place. I mean, there's two of you. There's you guys. You guys have the three cats, Uh-oh. three kids. I don't oh. know. Who knows? Oh. <laughs> uh, you might want to look into it. Um, it's funny because I've never lived with any of my uh, significant others. Like, I do this. I'm almost 30 years old. And I've never actually. I mean, I kind of did, or like, but it was like pandemic. So it was like a different yeah, thing necessity kind of thing it, yeah. it, i mean yeah it was like pretty much that because like at the time like uh, the the it was actually the the house that i started the podcast in uh, uh she had a spare room uh that she let me turn into like my little podcast studio so then pretty much i was there like four to five days of the week so it's like i almost was living there but i wasn't um so i still never had kind of the full experience of like truly you know living with a significant other 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there there's a lot of interesting ideas uh, that you know that are there and they're very relatable. I think that's you know maybe why um, the you know hallmarks of this movie have kind of you know still continued on just because they're very relatable. Like you know everyone you know is in relationships. Everyone's looking for a home you know and wants to feel safe with their family. So I think the relatability uh, is kind of uh, what does help keep uh, carry this film along. I wanted to ask about that because when I was watching this movie and I had kind of mentioned it up top is that there are so many beats, so many scares, so many tropes and almost kind of cliches. I think a lot of people would consider them now that are found in this movie. I know this is really not the first movie of its kind to do something like this, but I wanted to ask you and it seemed like you already kind of were heading in that direction. Why do you think a lot of those tenants have endured, you know, that family moving into this new house? You know, how many possession or horror movies do you see that that is kind of the log line? A family moves into a new house and they discover that it was built on a, you know, whatever. Is it the relatability or is it kind of the it being your home, a place of security that that horror is found? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, for the most part, obviously, there are, you know, large populations of unhomed people, but everyone moves into houses throughout their life, you know, at least a couple times. Like, you know, there are, of course, those people that, like, pass their houses down through the generations and then kind of stay there their entire life. Um, but that's uh, even, you know, getting less and less, to especially in today's age. Um, you know, we're kind of seeing a lot less of that. So it's like, yeah, I feel like everyone has had the, um, you know, uh, experiences of moving into a new place and the mystery that that entails. Um, you know, like even just like the little, you know, scenes of the kids when uh, the girl's like, oh, I want to go home. And, you know, uh, Kathy trying to explain like, well, this is your home now, you know. So it's like there's, there's the fear there. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I think it is also it's why um, uh, kind of home invasions uh, hit so hard for so many people because it is your home is supposed to be where you feel safe and secure and you know and like so the idea of the evils coming from within and like you know there's a point in the movie where you know uh, where it's just like hey you guys just need to get away from the house and stuff but it's like that's kind of hard to do because that's our home you know it's it's not like you know, and like going out for one night away from the house isn't going to fix it because they still have to go back to that house at the end of the night, you know? Um, so it's a, so like domestic horror is like kind of something that doesn't go away because you need your home. Yeah. I think that's also why, again, kids are such a, a, you know, a forefront of a lot of a lot of more contemporary films is because it does it kind of capitalizes on most people's biggest fear. It's that, you know, them being in danger in their home or that their kids are, you know, that's even worse, their kids being in danger. I think that's why so many films will kind of uh, play within that. What I like about this movie is that it really is, like we've mentioned, focused on these two as a relationship in this new context, in this new environment even. And I like that it really is kind of this fear of this woman who's got these children welcoming this new person into her family. You know, for somebody to welcome a new member of their family when they have kids, that's a much bigger deal than just a single person remarrying somebody. The fact that Mm -hmm. he's kind of this newfound father you know, and, you know, I think the movie really is about those kind of those changes that happen when you decide to move in with somebody and how even financial struggle struggles could kind of deteriorate this person that you maybe fell in love with. And then you got kind of get to see this ugly side to it, but just make it like a horror film to kind of ramp it up to the most extreme degree that they're going to, you know, chase your family with an axe, a fire axe. But yeah, I do feel like there are so many, you know, uh, so many kind of films that come out nowadays that you can certainly see this the you know the fingerprints of this movie all over yeah and and one thing that the movie does do uh again like i think the first half of this is so much better than the second half like they're like it mm-hmm. sets up so many things that just and then you're just so let down but like because like there's a, a point when you know jeff and george are having a conversation and like Jeff, like, kind of spells out, like, these pressures that George is feeling. He's like, hey, like, me and you, we're trying to run a business, and then you meet this gal, and now you're taking her on. Now you're taking her kids on. Now you're trying to buy a house, you know? Like, and that's a lot for somebody, like, kind of in that position. So you do see the horrors of it for sure. Uh, Not to say that, like, George's actions are justified, um, but it also is an interesting thing because the movie already shows him kind of being an ass before any of the paranormal stuff even starts at least at least him experiencing the paranormal stuff like he's already like kind of like like 
once they move in, he's already kind of like, oh, well, and he like flips it even to being like, well, this is your idea. And it's like, no, 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 no. She, she was apprehensive about it and you talked her into it, you know? So it's yeah. like he, you already kind of see shades of some of the things that are already within George. And then, so it's like, it does kind of make you question like how much of it was the forces of the house making him act like this and how much of that was already him to begin with. Would she have already experienced, you know, like some of these other things if the house wasn't haunted, but just if time would have went on long enough, you know? Well, it's just kind of exactly what I was, you know, talking about is this idea of, you know, moving in with somebody and then, you know, breaking up with them after a relationship and you go back and you see oh, well, him doing that earlier in our relationship would eventually become this. You know, you can kind of pick out those things or those details of who a person is. But, you know, the longer and longer you're with them, you know, those uh, those snags begin to, you know, tear more and more open and kind of reveal themselves a bit more. Yeah. And and so I kind of wanted to get into um, a little bit of like the actual possession itself like kind of on the subject like of like how much of it was him, how much of it was the house. Um, So like because this is very nondescript. I mean, because it's like, you know, typically in possession movies, like you, it's a specific demon, you know the demon's name, or you have to figure out the demon's name, and it kind of is that way, versus I do like the idea that, like, this is him being possessed by the, the spirit of the house that is kind of collected all this, uh, all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, there's a really great line that um, Brolin has when he's, like, uh, talking her into, and he goes, uh, and she's like talking about the, oh, well, isn't it kind of weird us living here with the deaths and stuff? And he says, houses don't have memories, which is like, no, they completely do. Like, you know, like a house, you know, kind of, yeah, might isn't a living entity, but like it does, you know, kind of store all these memories of the people that kind of come in within. Like it, it's just kind of inherent that that history is yeah. there. Um, and so I like that the idea that, you know, he is kind of possessed by this like, pool of bad energy i mean literally a black pool in the bottom of the basement later um but i i find that interesting because um carolyn uh has an interesting line that was kind of surprising to hear in 79 but i guess this was also you know hippie culture and era and things like that but um me and her we're completely aligned in the way that we view spirituality like because she's not talking about it in the terms of church and demons and stuff like that she says it. She's like, she's like, just like science, like energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can be, you know, recycled into a new form, but it doesn't just go away. And like, that's the way I feel about, uh, about things and religion. Like, no, I don't think there's a, I, I personally don't think there's an afterlife. Like I, and no, we'll never know that answer because nobody's ever going to be able to tell us, um, you know, but I do think that, you know, like souls do linger around or they get transferred into something else or they or take on another form um you know because even though i'm not religious i've experienced ghosts and it was literally a situation like this um i lived in a house but it wasn't uh it wasn't a murder though um it wasn't as dark and grisly as this it was just a an older lady that lived in the house happened to pass away in the house um you know she like had like some like diseases or something um, but it wasn't like murder or anything like that. And I saw her ghost like multiple times and my parents like couldn't, but there was no like nefarious hauntings or anything. Um, but so I, but, but so whenever Carolyn said that, I was like, holy shit. And I was like, that's exactly what I think. And you know, this is a near 50, 50 year old movie. Yeah. I, I think too that it also uh, another trope that I'm also seeing pop up a lot is the the husband's reaction to the to the wife having these uh, these uh, encounters uh, because George is constantly you know dismissing what what she's saying or these things that she saw the church is doing that too which is something that you see all the time in movies is that the kid is talking to somebody and they go, Oh, there's no monster in the closet. And I love that scene where uh, the kid is, you know, uh, hears the noise outside the window and in uh, the, the, the mom goes over and she's like, it's fine. Look, and then sees the glowing red eyes looking <laughs> at her, you know, that's such a, a staple of, of the genre. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of staples as far as like um the, the horror imagery, which I do think is uh, fairly strong. It's just the horror set pieces are kind of, spread out in a in a funky fashion like there isn't kind of the you know progression that we're kind of used to in these kind of movies where it's like you know things start off small and it's just like doors it's like we're kind of seeing some like big stuff at the beginning and then it kind of throughout the movie it like kind of simmers out and it turns into like more little things and then it like kind of ramps back up at the end 
Um, I think kind of could have used uh, some more horror set pieces in this middle section. Um, but like, um, you know, whether it be imagery like, you know, walls or stairs bleeding, I'm always a sucker for that. You give me a bleeding wall, I'm there. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, I really do enjoy the scene um, with uh, the, the preacher, uh, Father Delaney, um, at which one, one of my, nothing makes me more mad in any movie when someone knocks on a door and they don't get an answer and it opens and they just go in and start wandering around. It's like, yes, they were expecting you, but also like, bro, don't go in their house. Like, so like when he gets, you know, uh, trapped in the room, uh, with all the flies and shit, I'm like, yeah, you deserve this. Cause I hate you for literally walking around, going upstairs. He hears children voices, knocks on the door. Nobody answers. goes, Oh, well, I'll just walk in the children's room. Why not? And it's just like, bro so like but i really we were you know we were deciding if priests were human and i guess we figured it out that they are not in fact human <laughs> yeah so but but i really love the the uh touch of like you know it's like all the flies are kind of happening and then the score and everything goes completely quiet like it drops every sound out and then you hear the whisper of get out and then it yells that's a fantastic scene i thought that was like really uh well done the the use of sound design in general is really cool uh in this movie and again, it's another moment in this film that uh, is, I, I think, really iconic. But again, I, I think if you're talking about possession movies in which a, a priest is attacked by bugs, you kind of have to talk about The Exorcist, man. It just did it way better. That bathroom scene with the, the, the priest, uh, uh, you know, with the flies all attacking him is just, it's, again, it's influential, yes, but has it been outdone? And I think in, the, in this case, even in this scene, probably the most iconic scene from this movie, I think that's still kind of proves to be true yeah and uh i i really liked um i really liked at the beginning too um the way that um you know when we're kind of seeing the initial murders like again like uh, some of the sound design stuff is really cool like whenever they're like matching shotgun blasts with the thunder of the storm i thought that was yeah. like a, a, an interesting uh a little tidbit and they kind of bring it back later um and the in the score for this obviously uh you know uh grammy nominated or uh, oscar nominated but is fantastic uh i'm a i'm a sucker for a score with a, a creepy uh choir behind it um so like a lot of the uh score um uh, notes for this uh hit really well for me i agree yeah uh, we've talked before that you know the score of a movie is not something that i'm going to pick up on my first watch but this you know not being my first watch uh, i was really able to appreciate that and i think i also knew that this had earned itself an oscar nomination which we talked already kind of discussed is so crazy to me because it just never happens nowadays that i was really paying attention to it and yeah you're exactly right there's so many really interesting arrangements uh, i'm also a sucker for a nice you know choral backup uh in a score and this has it all over it i think that there's so many like pretty good set pieces that are made very memorable uh and i think a lot of that is due in part to the score yeah and and other things that you know uh adding to the to the scare factor of the film and i mentioned it in my like kind of opening is uh with possession movies you kind of get these dual performances in a way um with uh the the possessee um uh how'd you feel about uh george's uh kind of descent into madness like did you find him uh scary did you kind of feel for him like uh how'd you feel about uh his uh his uh slow going possession I think the they you know a lot of the Amityville movies kind of play the possession a little straight for my liking. I think he kind of just goes from like being just a dick in a way that a lot of guys are dicks and then mm -hmm. kind of just descends into just being kind of off by himself and sweaty and just has a, a crazed look in his eye. I am much more of a fan of something like you know Jack Nicholson in The Shining who just goes completely bananas it's just crazy and is you know quoting late night hosts and all you know that true madness I think he plays it a little straight for my liking I think it's fine but I would say in regards to possession performances it's probably not in my top 10 I think I think it fits the movie I think had he gone really over the top I don't know if it would have been suited for a film like this uh, but for me even at the end of the day I think it's fine I think Margot Kidder is really the the big shine uh, as well as uh, Rod uh, Steerger uh, who plays uh, Father Delaney I mean uh, Rod Steerger he's given a great performance it's just not for this movie like he's, he's acting in a See, whole he's going other over the movie top and he's yelling and screaming and shit <laughs> yeah he, he's kind of acting in his own movie and uh but yeah for for me george uh i think i think the descent is interesting because again like a lot of his frustrations are coming out from problems that were there prior to the house 
like at you know at one point you know like he's like getting annoyed when jeff is like hey the irs is calling for this and then you know uh you know uh, uh people are calling for this you know uh, customers need this and like all these things and he's like getting all mad and angry about it but it's just like yeah this is already a problem that he was gonna have otherwise so like the possession is just kind of letting all these like under boiling things kind of come out and which is almost kind of a good thing because like hey you don't want to let this stuff kind of boil and then you know you explode so it's like the possession of the house is almost like hey deal with your problems asshole um you know in a in an interesting way but i would have liked to have seen um uh something i need like a distinction between like the two different versions of the person and then like the the possessed part i think the line was supposed to be blurred for this but like you know i'm a sucker for a for a a, a, a creepy voice or or like a, a body tick or something like that but like you said really all we get is like when he's like in super possessed mode his like eyes are like really red and intense but then you do kind of see in moments like when he snaps out of it his like face relaxes which is like kind of a, a nice little acting choice but yeah he they could have been a little bit more to kind of uh distinguish his possession yeah I would have liked a big handlebar mustache that he twirls and he goes, now I'm the evil one. <laughs> that would I mean, have really worked for me. Or a nice goatee. He shaves his beard down to a goatee and then grows it back the next day. <laughs> yeah, like, because they did the thing where it's like he looks a lot like DeFeo or whatever. It would have been interesting if, like, DeFeo did have a goatee and then he, like like you said, like shaves his, like, giant beard into the goatee and, like, that could have been a big deal because it's like, oh, honey, I thought you loved your beard and then I, know, uh, turns I into looked into like it while you were talking before and that actor that plays DeFeo is his brother. It's it's uh, James Brolin's brother with a fake beard on, so very intentionally supposed to like look like him, but ah. obviously not be the exact same yeah. person. But yeah, I, I I personally will defend. I I kind of prefer the blurred line to myself. I like that it, as an audience member, you do kind of ask, you know, which is the the actual George, but which is the possessed George, and I I think that. I would rather that this possession does kind of address these personal problems in a marriage or insecurities within a person and kind of capitalize on that and use that as a way to kind of manipulate this person that it's, you know, trying to possess over time and kind of wear them down. I, I like that there's not such a distinct uh, kind of switching between the two of them. And I think that there is that scene with George where he's chasing her with the, the axe and he eventually kind of snaps out of it and then, you know, uh, begins to hug her but then snaps kind of back again so I do think especially towards the end of the film there is this pretty clear you know back and forth but everything leading up to that yeah I prefer a little a uh, little haziness there yeah I, I even like the scene with uh with him and Jeff which like I said Jeff's actually a really good friend uh he he wants Jeff's George to talk man. he wants George to talk about his problems he's got his back uh, you know, he's there, you know, like, hey, I'll, you know, we'll take care of the kids to like try to help you all these different things. And he's also the one trying to like talk sense into him. Um, I really like the, the bar scene, which one George was drinking Miller High Life, my boy. Um, <laughs> uh, lo love seeing anytime I see Miller High Life in a movie. Um, Champagne but, of beers, man. But like, I love the I love the moment where, you know, George is kind of and again, like at this point, he's at the bar. So like this isn't possessed George, but he has a moment where it's like he's possessed. Uh, you know, where he's like, he gets all super angry and he punches Jeff in the face and Jeff being a homie is like, okay, now can we talk? I was like, man, I was like, Jeff is a good guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I like him, but he like had like a possessed moment in the bar, but he wasn't possessed. So again, it's like, so, so the blurred line part does work for, uh, for that at least. Um, uh, you mentioned Margot Kidder and, uh, I, I think her performance is good. I think she's just not they're doing enough you know like because the movie is so focused on george like we're watching george chop wood we're watching him ride his motorcycle we're watching george do a lot of shit and uh kathy yeah is kind of the the reactionary one and like you know kind of uh in that so uh what what stood out to you about uh, her performance um i just i don't know i maybe i'm just a sucker for margot kidder lest we forget Who that you know Who of isn't? course that yeah i mean we, i know that a lot of people you know rightfully so give her the love for for her performance is Lois Lane in a lot of the old Superman movies, but also she's a bona fide scream queen. Lest we forget, she's in this as well as Black Christmas. So I just think it's a real pleasure to see her. I think she's got this great sort of um, attitude towards her, and I think here it really does shine. And she uh, is also seeing her kind of deteriorate in a different way and just getting shorter and a little bit more uh, kind of manic throughout the film. I really appreciate 
Um, but yeah, I, I think that she's just maybe a, a bit more magnetic, but I might just be biased. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of, of course, who doesn't? Uh, there was a Twitter prompt going around that was like, what's the best performance by a cigarette in a movie? And I mean, uh, Margot Kidder in Black Christmas gives a great cigarette smoking performance. Uh, honestly, uh, it's an extension of her body in that film. Um, but yeah, I think she was supposed to be the the anchor because she's the one that is religious and like she's the one that is in um, uh, Father Delaney's parish and all these things. Um, so I, you know, but we'd never really kind of see her having these lapses of faith. But this film kind of isn't about that. What I did find interesting about the religious stuff, even though it is kind of uh, distinctly separate, the one time that it does connect is when. Um, she really needs Rob, uh, Father Delaney in a certain moment and he can't be bothered because he's going through his own shit. So it's like, it was like kind of an interesting, like, well, of course the church wants to get involved when you don't want them to, but then when you actually need them, you know, they can't actually help you, which I found interesting. And then with, uh, Delaney kind of, uh, having these, uh, squabbles with his own fellow preachers, um, I thought, uh, that kind of scene was interesting because he's religious, but comes from a, a, a psychotherapy background as well, which the other preachers are like down on because he's not pure religion and stuff. Um, there was, a uh, one point where one preacher says, who the hell do you think you are? And I'm like, well, that's kind of hilarious hearing a preacher saying who the hell, <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was uh, funny, but then there's kind of like a thing of, uh, the church, uh, only acknowledging the good because he's trying to say this thing that he experienced and all this stuff. And they're just like, we don't believe you. You sound hysterical. And it's like, if you are, you know, true to following the religion that you're following, you have to acknowledge the good and the evil. You can't just be like, nope, it's only good. Uh, I mean, yeah, demons exist, but they're not, they don't bother us, you know? So I found that kind of interesting, uh, in, in those interactions. Like I was saying, and we can kind of use it to wrap into some final thoughts here, is that I just think that this movie is a collection of a lot of really interesting ideas, and it, I do think that it addresses a lot of uh, pretty topical uh, things, uh, things that have certainly, I think, withstood the test of time about you know, relationships and moving in with someone and kind of what that all looks like and kind of the fear of letting this, you know, strange man into a, you know, a woman's house that, you know, has looking over these children. There's also some stuff about religion in class uh, and, and, and marriage in general. I just think it's not really uh, presented in the most compelling way possible. I think there are some structure issues uh, here. Obviously, there's some pacing issues. I think that that's one of the biggest um, uh, kind of downfalls of the movie for uh, for a lot of people. But I just kind of have to respect it a little bit uh, for how much it does have kind of the ingredients of something really compelling that I just think a lot of other movies that have used those same ingredients but have presented it in a really fascinating way. So um, out of five, what, pieces of chopped wood, <laughs> I would give it probably, I would say two and a half to three. I'm feeling generous today, so I'll say a three out of five. I, I, I think that it's better than a lot of people give it credit for, which is weird to say because it is such a iconic, you know, in, a, in its own weird way, an influential horror film. But I do think that I kind of need to defend this movie in a little bit. You know, I, I, I think there's some good stuff there. Is it a great movie? And certainly not. But I don't think it's like kind of the unwatchable garbage that a lot of people claim it to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, I love my food analogies, so I'll put it in the way that this setting the template for a lot of stuff is very important. You know, I'm sure the first version of certain recipes aren't always the best ones, but they have the ingredients there that can be refined and tweaked for later. You know, De like Devon is saying, this is that one awkward pancake, the first <laughs> one that you pour, you know, it never turns out quite right. The second one is what we're really interested in here. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much like, you know, like, uh, again, like, you know, you got to start somewhere, you got to experiment with stuff, you know, recipes aren't just made out of thin air, you know, like they, they do have to be uh, uh, workshopped a bit. So like there is so many, uh, things that, you know, whether it be the imagery, whether there it be themes, uh, whether it be a story structure, there is a lot of stuff that this movie is the template for. I mean, the third act for this movie was stolen by my movie for movie math, uh, which we'll get into, but like they literally stole this entire third act, um, which unfortunately though, the, uh, the end is kind of an interesting thing because it's like, you know, usually in a possession movies, it ends with like the exorcism and good vanquishes the evil. And like, there's kind of a very definitive thing. And it's in, it's a, 
I'm hot and cold on it that, you know, it's just like they just leave and that's just the end of the movie, uh, yeah, you know, right. uh, you know, which I mean, I guess, uh, you know, because it does play on that. You know, why don't they ever just leave? But like this movie did give a good amount of reasons as to, you know, their their financial status and things like that. But um, yeah, so it's like the whole movie just like kind of even ended on a whimper for me. And I was just kind of like left kind of empty by it. So, yeah, I, I enjoy a lot of the ideas here and some of the um uh horror imagery as well but it is a very disjointed uh kind of bloated uh you know ill-paced film as well but also with some decent performances and some good sound design so um but uh no uh because i'm probably never gonna watch this movie again i just made me want to watch the 2005 one again uh so i'm giving this a two out of five um uh yeah I, I i can't i can't get it up to to the positive points uh for me so yeah two two out of five uh logs of wood for this one for me <laughs> uh, and then watching the uh, uh ryan reynolds one you're gonna have your own log of wood devon <laughs> oh hey oh hey oh uh but yeah let's uh continue our conversation in the uh, movie math portion since this is such an influential movie uh we're gonna have plenty of movies to pick from All right, here on Movie Math, we like to take some films that reminded us of the movie that we discussed today being the Amityville Horror. Uh, we've already talked how uh, influential this movie was of so many other films. Uh, so what did this movie remind you of, Devon? So so I'm going to do a first here. Uh, I got one movie to, to put in the equation here. I'm ready. Um, I'm and, ready. Uh, so my Movie Math, this is uh, uh, the square root of Poltergeist equals this movie. Um, it, uh, Spielberg and Hooper took so much from this movie and improved upon it. And especially, like I said, like this third act is like almost side by side, like, you know, tree branches through the window, the storm uh, falling into a, a dark, you know, a, a, a pool of water. You know, all there's so many things and so much of Poltergeist, it hinges on this domestic horror. Um, but he does flip it, you know, in Poltergeist with it being this very wholesome, loving family, you know, fearing for their safety and security that is kind of, you know, being stripped away by this house and like how much of a more just like kind of well-rounded it is. And that movie does it without the religious aspect to it. Um, it's, you know, it is a haunting and they kind of go into it was, you know, the house is built on uh, sacred land, which poltergeist the movie was built on native american land and then the 2005 remake then took that from poltergeist after poltergeist stole pretty much 75 percent of this movie for poltergeist so like kind of a interesting uh snake eating its tail moment there so all i got for this one is this is the square root of poltergeist i think uh that's really fair i also had the square root here uh but i picked uh the conjuring um, because I think that that too has a similar vibe to it, very like leafy, you know, I think this would really fit into that November kind of time period here, um, you know, moving into this new house and kind of struggling to uh, keep this big family all together. Um, and that also focuses on uh, a parent, too, rather than, you know, the children. Uh, I have that plus uh, Money Pit, uh, the Tom Hanks movie um, about this family uh, or this couple. It's a 1986 comedy about this couple who moves into this like fixer upper house and it just keeps falling apart. That's more of like a slapstick comedy. But I think you take the square root of the conjuring uh, ad, you know, added to Money Pit. I think that's Amityville. So I think there's a little bit more to this movie um, and what it's missing is a uh, a screwball comedy from 1986. <laughs> I mean, when's the last time a podcast has mentioned the money pit? Uh, Who else is an, doing it like we are? Episode. Nobody, nobody. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that title in years. Uh, if we were doing movie math for The Conjuring, it would be like Poltergeist times um, uh, times this movie. I think The Conjuring is like really the sweet spot in between these two, uh, in between Poltergeist and this film. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, The Conjuring almost made mine, but I just wasn't sure how to incorporate it in the equation. So I kept it simple this time around. Nice, nice. Look but, at us. But yeah, so that's a nice kickoff. Uh, and it, I don't think we've ever kicked off a month with a film that we have, you know, uh, as much criticisms for uh, usually well, at least our... we did it you know in order this month at least the first episode true, of this month is at true. least kind of like the ground level you know this is the foundation we're building upon it so i i support it true that 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 actually is good yeah we can only go up from here um uh, we're gonna go so high up in next episode we're going to space uh, uh as we uh talk event horizon so very excited uh for that one a very 
different uh haunted house possession movie uh for sure um but uh what are you working on right now garrett Oh, not too much. Uh, just been having a lot of fun recording some stuff over on our Patreon. Uh, and so make sure you guys are supporting that. Uh, that's been a total blast. Uh, but if you guys want to uh, check out some other stuff, you can follow me on uh, Letterboxd and TikTok, uh, as well as Twitter at Garrett McDowell. I also have another podcast that is a Star Wars podcast. It's called Scum and Villainy with new episodes every Thursday. Thank you for mentioning uh, the upcoming Patreon. I meant to uh, do that at the top of the episode. Uh, but yes, guys, uh, at the end of this month, starting in January 2024, we will have a Patreon uh, with lots of uh, extra goodies for you guys. We'll have some uh, bonus reviews for like uh, the new releases that we don't get to do uh, throughout the year. Um, we have a new sideshow, which you guys, um, at the time of this recording, it just went up. Or actually, no, it's uh, going up on Friday. Um, actually, no, fuck. I am I'm a liar again. <laughs> It'll be up eventually. <laughs> Let me take that back. Uh, if, if you guys didn't already check it out in the feed, um, we have a uh, side show that will be going on on the Patreon, uh, watching the watch list where me and Garrett uh, go through our letterbox accounts and uh, kind of give a monthly recap and, uh, you know, choose movies off each other's watch list to, to enjoy. So um, we got that. We got the uh, commentary for Blood Rage that you uh, also got for free on uh, this main feed. But uh, come January, those things won't be free anymore. Um, uh, only a couple dollars uh, at the base level to uh, start off the Patreon. So, you know, that'll be coming here in a few weeks. Uh, be on the lookout for that. And as usual, you can find me uh, on all social medias at underscore Daddy Disco. Um, you can hear me over on the Pot and Pendulum. We just kicked off a, a month of, uh, you know, Christmas horror movies. Uh, and I'll be doing a couple of those. Uh, we did Better Watch Out, which is a, a film that I covered here on season one with the director, uh, Chris Peckover himself. Um, so if you want to uh, go hear um, us talk about Better Watch Out on Pot and Pendulum, uh, go check that out as well. But now go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys. Stay lifted.